Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hey everyone, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors at Salt Church and uh, warm welcome if this is your first time tuning in to live stream or you're more than first time. Welcome to you as well. Uh, I came across a quote this week from a man named John Stuart Mill. I have no idea who this man is. I don't know anything else about him, but I came across this quote and it struck a chord with me. He said, a man who has nothing which he is willing to fight for Nothing which he cares more about than he does about his personal safety is a miserable creature. How do you react to that quote? I think he's right. When I see people making sacrifices because they're gripped by something that's worth fighting for, that inspires me. Uh, A classic example of this is Nelson Mandela. I'm sure you know the story of Nelson Mandela who fought to end apartheid in South Africa. I want to be like him. I want to be gripped by something that is worth fighting for. To spend years, decades in prison, if that's what it takes. For my life to matter, to make a difference. What would make it onto your list? What would you sacrifice for? What would you die for? Because what you'd sacrifice and die for shows what matters most to you. And in our culture, we get a long list of things that matter. Our happiness is right near the top of that list. But there's also causes. Causes make it onto that list. Things like fixing climate change, giving basic human rights and equality to people who are oppressed. Caring for orphans, ending child sex trafficking, giving justice to victims of abuse, ending poverty. There's all sorts of causes. And these causes are worth fighting for. Being safe and being happy is way less important than leaving a mark, making a difference in this world. And we're about to meet a man with a cause who cares about something much bigger than his own safety. He literally gives his life for what matters most, Jesus. And Stephen, this guy we meet, he's a likable, intelligent, sensible man who dies for Jesus. And his story will give us seven reasons it makes sense to follow Jesus. Why Jesus is the one to fight for, to live for, to die for. Why honoring Jesus is the cause above all others. Why Jesus matters most. And we meet him in the book of Acts. If you've been tuning in at Soul Church for a while, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. And so far in Acts, there is an attractive, beautiful, wise church that has sprung from nowhere. That people have been joining in their thousands But other people hate it, and opposition has been increasing. The political and the religious leaders have hauled, the leaders of the church, the apostles, they've hauled them to court for two barely legal trials. And now, in Acts chapter 6, they target a semi-apostle, and they throw legal out the door. And Phoebe's going to jump up and read for us a little bit of Acts. So have a look at Acts chapter 6. Pull it up in your Bible, Acts chapter 6. Phoebe's actually going to jump in at a few different points across this sermon. So stay tuned for that. Here she comes. 
Okie dokie. Um, grab your Bibles. As Jeff said, we're going to go to chapter 6 in Acts, which is after Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It's the book after that. Um, we're getting pretty familiar with it now. Okie dokie. So chapter 6, verse 8. Big, big number 6, little 8. Now Stephen, a, f- a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? So here's the characters we're seeing. We've got Stephen and Stephen is here doing the same indisputable signs as the apostles. Uh, Stephen is clearly, sorry, God is clearly at work in Stephen. God is clearly at work in this man, and God's clearly at work in the church and in him. There is no match for the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit at work in him. And since these people can't match him, the Jewish leaders who debate him to try and stop him, since they can't match the wisdom he has from the Holy Spirit, they can't win fair, and so they stop playing fair. They throw two false accusations at him. First, that he speaks against God's holy place, and second, that he speaks against God's holy law. Now, these don't seem like a big deal. Uh, these are not, they're not accusing him of murder or something like that, but these are actually two very serious charges that they throw at him. If you were an Old Testament Jew, part of God's people, the ancient Israelites, and if you ignored God's law, if you disregarded the temple, then God told his people... You should shun that person. You should kick them out of your community. You should even put them to death by stoning in some cases. So this is a pretty serious charge that they've leveled against Stephen. And in this false trial from these false accusations, they managed to produce some evidence. They tell the, the court, the Sanhedrin, they tell the court that what Stephen has said, that Stephen said Jesus will destroy the temple and he will change the customs that Moses gave. And then Stephen gives this really long defense. We're going to look at that in a second. But we're going to skip to the end to see the end of the trial. So have a look. Phoebe's going to jump back up to chapter 7, verse 51. All right, here we are. End of chapter 7 this time. Thank you, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Uh, At the end of Stephen's speech, the judges that he's talking to just absolutely lose it, don't they? They grind their teeth, they cover their ears, they yell at the top of their lungs, they kill him with rocks. Uh, it kind of reminds me of toddlers having a tantrum or grown men putting fingers in their ears and just going, la, la, la. it, it kind of reminds me of that. It would be laughable if it wasn't so evil, if it wasn't so premeditated. Because even in their uncontrollable rage, they still keep pretending that this is a legal trial. So that little bit there when the witnesses lay their coats at the foot of Saul That's actually proper legal process in ancient Israel. If you proved that someone was guilty, then the people who first accused them should be the ones to throw the first stone. And that's what they do. The false accusers are the ones. They're pretending that this is a legal trial. And here we have the first person to die for Jesus. Stephen is the first person who has ever died for Jesus. And in this section, there's a massive contrast between them and Stephen. Because Stephen copies Jesus on the cross. I don't know if you noticed this as you went through. Uh, He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As you look at Stephen, we don't have to guess what matters to him. He is gripped by a cause he's willing to fight for. He's willing to die for. He's the first to die for Jesus. And Stephen shows us seven reasons it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus. Here's the seven reasons. Here's the first one. It makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus because you need to stand with Jesus. As you look at these people, this Sanhedrin, what do you notice? I notice that these people absolutely hate Jesus. And so they hate Christians. Now, I grew up in the 90s uh, and there was a popular idea at the time in the 90s. If we could just show the world that Christians were normal... Uh, that we're not awkward, that we're not different. If Christians could just be popular and and liked, 
then people would want to, have, want to listen to what Jesus has to say. Uh, I remember this time in uh, 2004 when the band Switchfoot took off. Uh, and some Christians, it felt like we were saying, yes, this is it. We finally arrived. Because this wasn't a Christian rock band. These were Christians in a rock band. And they were the top of the charts, the top of the real charts, not the Christian charts. It's like finally we'd arrived, finally we'd done this thing. And I reckon this is a pretty tempting strategy. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be popular. No one wants to be hated. And I actually used to hear this complaint. Uh, I actually used to, to do this thing until someone pointed out the problem in it. I used to hear people complain about Christians. And I would say to them, oh, yeah, but, but I'm not like those other Christians. I'm just like you. A soul church, sure, we're not like those other churches. I'm just like you. Uh, maybe that's something you've done. It's certainly something I've done. But can you see the problem in doing that? Besides the fact that I've written off every other example of being a Christian, if I'm the same as you, what would ever motivate you to become a Christian like me? Stephen is a wake-up call for us. We need to stand with Jesus. Stephen is this likable, intelligent, sensible man who is murdered by people who absolutely hate Jesus. Their hatred is extreme, it's irrational, and it has happened to Christians in every part of the world in every time in history. We need to stand with Jesus. There's actually a chilling warning that Jesus gives to Christians or would-be Christians, would-be followers of him. He says this in Mark 8. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is a chilling warning. We need to stand with Jesus whatever it costs. That's the first reason it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus. We need to stand with him. But why would you do that? Because of the second reason it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus. He is Lord. As Stephen gets to see at this point, just before he dies, Stephen gets to see where Jesus is and who Jesus is. Have a look. Chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man, the ruler of of everything at the right hand of God. This is why Jesus is the one to fight for. This is why Jesus is the one to live and to die for. This is why giving Jesus honor is the cause above all other causes. This is why it makes sense to lose everything for Jesus. Because unlike all the mixed opinions out there in our culture, he's not a good moral teacher. He's not simply a miracle worker. He's not simply a prophet or your homeboy, another 90s, 2000s throwback. He's actually the Lord of the universe. That's who Jesus is. And when every cause is finished, when every fight has been fought, there'll only be one thing left that matters. Jesus. 
They're the first two reasons. But we get five more reasons why it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus in Stephen's speech. And in his speech, he's defending against those two false accusations. That he speaks against God's holy place, the temple, and that he speaks against God's holy law, the commands that God gave to Moses. And these two things were a big deal for ancient Israel. Because the temple was where God promised to meet with his people, to be with his people. And the law is how he told his people to live, how they were to stay as his people. And Stephen, across this kind of 60-verse response, meets these two accusations with three defenses. Uh, As we look through it, it's not so much a self-defense as it is a history lesson to show that they are more guilty than he is. Uh, And here's the first defense. God's holy place, what is God's holy place? God's holy place is where God is with his people. Phoebe's going to read some of Stephen's speech for us. All right. So we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 7, and we're just going to skip through four four different little chunks. So I'll guide you through those. The first one is chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. All right, we're going to skip down a little bit to verse 8. We're going to read to chapter, um, the end of verse 10. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Okie doke. The next section is verses 30 to 34. So just down a little bit further. Might need to go over the page. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come to come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. And the last section for this little bit is verse 44, so just down about half a page. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. 
After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? Uh, Do you get the gist of that defense? Uh, Basically, God is with his people in lots of times and in lots of different places. And wherever God is, that's God's holy place. So God was with Abraham in a land called Haran. God was with Joseph in Egypt. What's the holy place for Moses? It's a burning bush in the desert. God says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is a holy place. And then he gives a tabernacle, a tent, basically a big tent as a sign that he's with his people. And finally, King Solomon builds a house for God. The temple that Stephen's opponents are so keen to protect. But what does he say? It's not really a house for God. Because you can't contain God in something as small as a house. This is actually how Stephen turns the tables on his accusers and shows that they're more guilty than him. They're accusing of him of speaking against God's holy place. But they're the ones trying to contain God into a building. They're the ones trying to domesticate God, the God that made everything. The God who made humans doesn't need humans to do anything for him. Now, I reckon this is probably not a temptation for us at Soul Church to think that God is in a building, especially to think that God is in our building. You haven't been here for a while, but it's a cold warehouse warehouse like it's always been with pallets and plants and ladders that go nowhere. Uh, I don't think that you know, if, if you were God, would you want to live in this building? Probably not. But I think we face the same temptation that they did to want to domesticate God, to want to contain God, to imagine that there's only certain places that are more spiritual or more mystical where we can experience God. Uh, this history lesson that he gives shows that God's holy place is wherever the holy God is with his people. And this history lesson helps us understand something massive about Jesus. It helps us understand Stephen's claim about Jesus. Flick back a page. Come back to chapter 6, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14. See what he says. This is the false accusation they give. We have heard Stephen say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. He'll destroy the temple. Uh, They're false accusers, so they get it a little bit wrong. Jesus doesn't say he's going to destroy the temple, but he does say he's going to replace the temple. That now the place where God meets with his people is not a special land in Israel. It's not a special temple. It's not a building. It's actually a people. It's Christians. It's church. Uh, Have a look at these verses. From 1 Peter 2 and 1 Corinthians 6, it says, As you come to Jesus, the living stone, 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Or 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? The place where God meets with his people is in Christians, in the church, as the church gathers together. And this is the third reason it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus. Because God is with us. The holy place is no longer a temple, it's Christians. The same God who was with Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Stephen is with us. In every persecution, every opposition, every suffering that we experience, whatever happens to us. God is there and he notices all the sacrifices we make. The big ones, the tiny ones, and they all matter to him. Which is a huge comfort, isn't it? If you're listening in, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. See what Christians have. The infinite God is at our side. He is always with us. That's the third reason. And then we get to Stephen's second defense. What is God's law? God's law is living words that people reject. Phoebe's going to read the next bit. Chapter 7, verse 37. All right, starting from verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon and stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? Have you taken up the tabernacle of Melech? And the star of your God, Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Uh, basically, in this bit, he says that the law that Moses received from God, they told Israel how to live. It told them the ways that they were meant to be, and it's called living words. The living, precious words from our God, who's not a cruel master, he's good. Uh, He knows what's best for us, and he's kind enough to tell us what's best for us. And he told that to ancient Israel in their laws. But even while Moses is still hearing and getting those laws, they reject him. They reject God's word. They reject God's commands. And the same thing happens all through ancient Israel's history. In the time of Stephen, there they're accusing Stephen and accusing Jesus of changing the laws and changing all the customs. But he says to them, no, you are just like your fathers. They rejected God's law almost the second they heard it. 
This is the fourth reason it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus. He tells us to. We, like ancient Israel, have the precious living words of God. The law of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's called the law of Christ in a bunch of different places. And our Lord Jesus is not a cruel master. He's good. He knows what's best for us and he's kind enough to tell us. We don't want to be like ancient Israel. We want, don't want to be like Stephen's accusers who reject God's law. And let me just show you one law from Jesus in the Bible. Let me show you this. Philippians and 2 Timothy says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Or 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here's the expectation from Jesus. You will suffer for Jesus if you choose to live a godly life. And as if there's any other life worth living than a godly life. We hear this law. We need to make sure that we don't reject the law of our Lord Jesus. This is the fourth reason it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus. He tells us to. That's what we're meant to expect. And then we get to third, the third defense from Stephen. He talks about God's leaders. And he says God's leaders are rejected, but they're still God's leaders. Phoebe's going to jump up again. You'll have to follow me around again for this last one. So chapter 7 again of Acts, verses 9 to 10 to kick off. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. And then down to verse 23, and we'll read till 29. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would recognize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Man, you are brothers. Why would you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Um, going down a bit further, we'll go to verse 35, 36. Last one, verse 35. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Uh Last defense, the founding fathers of Israel, he chases back through the story, tells them the founding fathers of Israel rejected their brother Joseph. But what happened to him? God made him the ruler 
over most of Egypt. And then the next generation disowned and rejected and pushed aside Moses. But God made Moses their ruler, the deliverer of ancient Israel, sent by God to rescue his people from Egypt and lead them into freedom. Basically, it makes zero percent difference if you reject God's prophets, God's leaders. They're still God's leaders. So at the end, we finally get to the end of the speech and the final accusation from Stephen and why the crowd cries for blood. Have a look, chapter 7, verse 51. Here's how he wraps up this whole speech again. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. That's a fierce accusation. He is innocent. They're guilty. They don't defend God's law and God's place. They are stiff-necked, arrogant rebels like their fathers were. Because even their fathers knew that God's holy place was wherever God was with them. Their fathers rejected Moses and they just killed Jesus. Their fathers received the law and rejected the law the same as they were. Now, Stephen could have said nothing. He could have just gone with the flow, but he doesn't shrink back because he's gripped by the glory of Jesus. He can see that Jesus is the one to fight for. He is the one to live for. He is the one to die for. He can see that giving Jesus honor is the cause above all other causes, that Jesus matters most. And his speech gives us the last three reasons it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus Fifth, because we're in good company. Opposition for following God is the normal experience for God's people. Moses was rejected. Jesus was murdered. Stephen was martyred. When we face rejection for trusting in Jesus, we're in some pretty good company there. Uh, And I'm no fortune teller, but it seems to me like resistance for being a Christian in Australia is increasing. Uh, there's laws that, uh, you know, laws that were built on Christian values are being changed and eroded at the moment. I don't think, I don't think I'm saying anything provocative there. I think that's pretty obvious. Our Christian beliefs, they're no longer tolerated as being out of touch. The new language is now that they're harmful. That's the language that we're hearing. Christian beliefs, they're not out of touch. They're harmful and dangerous. And I think this is so sad to see this happen in our culture Because God knows what's best for us. He's not a cruel master. He's kind. He tells us what, how to live and the best way for everyone to live, whether you're a believer of him or not. And I think it's, it's actually worth speaking up against causes and these laws as they change. And we're probably going to need more Christians to speak up in the years ahead and to engage in the political process Because I think it's likely that we'll have less politicians who are representing Christian values. That just seems to be the way our culture is drifting. I think we'll probably need to free up some Christian leaders who can do that, who can engage in the political process for the sake of doing what's going to be good for our whole community. Uh, There are, though, some limits 
to what politics can achieve. Laws and political activism can't save anyone. Laws can't change hearts. I think it's really fascinating in the book of Acts, the disciples, the apostles have been dragged before the Sanhedrin a couple of times, the ruling Jewish court, all the political and religious leaders, and they don't try and change it. They don't go, okay, if only we could get, maybe maybe if we can get half of the Sanhedrin to be Christians, then we can change it, we can set some laws to approve Christianity, and then we won't be persecuted. They don't do any of that. They just keep on teaching the gospel, keep on telling people about Jesus. I think that makes sense because laws, activism, policies, they can't save people. They can't change hearts. It's good to feel sad at where our culture is going. It's good to speak up for where our culture is going. But I reckon we've got to make sure we don't pine for what we've lost. You've got to make sure we don't feel like, if only we could get back to the glory days. You know, If only we could get back to the days when Christians were loved and popular and respected. You know, like, like the days of Acts. If only we could get back to the days of Acts. That would be great, wouldn't it? The surprise, I think, is, that, is not that it's harder to be a Christian now. It is harder to be a Christian in Australia than it used to be. I don't think that's what's surprising. I think what's surprising is that this hasn't happened earlier. Our moment in history has been the anomaly, not the norm. So when there's more hate for being a Christian, see that that's the normal experience of God's people. That's normal Christianity, and we are in some good company. Sixth reason it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus. He is the judge who will bring justice. At the end of Stephen's trial, if you can call it a trial, it looks like the false accusers have won. But the reality is that there is a God who will bring justice. A 400 years before it happens, God tells Abraham that your descendants, your kids are going to end up as slaves in Egypt under the cruel hand of Pharaoh. But have a look at chapter 7 verse 7. Look at what he says to him. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. We don't need to fear when it seems like evil is winning. God sees and the perfect judge will bring justice. And seventh reason it makes sense to sacrifice for Jesus. God wins. When you see the history of God's people like we've seen in this speech, when you see All this stuff that God said and done and spoken, the powerful hand of God is so clear, so obvious. He knows what will happen hundreds of years before it takes place. He brings nations crashing down onto their knees. And next week, we're actually going to see that even Stephen's death is God's plan. It's the crucial next step in the growth of the church. You can't stop our God. We can be stopped. The small part that we play in God's cosmic plans will end. But the God whose team we play on is unstoppable. And at the end of the game, God wins. Now, what will you say to this if you've been listening in and you're not a believer? You're not someone who follows Jesus. You're kind of exploring this. I've got to admit, I've probably given you a fairly unappealing picture of why you'd want to be a Christian. Opposition, persecution, suffering, even death. 
Who would sign up for that? I guess, though, I want to just come back to something I said at the start. Our culture gives us a long list of things that matter, and our own happiness is right at the top of the list. But at the same time, I think we all have this deep feeling that it's right to fight for things that matter. We don't want to be that miserable creature that John Mill described. Nothing you're willing to fight for. Nothing you care about more than your own safety. We want to be gripped by something that's worth living for, something that's worth dying for. And if what I've said about Jesus is true, there's a compelling case to make Jesus the one you live for, to make Jesus' honor and fame the cause that you devote your life to. There's many good causes to support. I'd encourage you to join in some of them. But when every cause is finished, When every fight has been fought, there'll only be one thing left that matters. Jesus. What about for you, if you would call yourself a Christian, if you follow Jesus, how do you know if you're living for Jesus? How can you make sure that you're living for Jesus? Well, what you sacrifice for shows you what matters to you. And what you sacrifice for now shows you what matters to you. Uh, It's unlikely in Australia, even with where our culture is going, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to have to die for Jesus like Stephen does. But that is the experience of Christians in many other parts of the world. Uh, I remember hearing a brutal story about a church in China. I heard this years ago, uh, but it's sadly this story is still common in many parts of the world. Christians in this church in China were meeting secretly in a house as they usually did. But this time, something unusual happened. Their door got kicked down, and men came in holding guns. And they said to the Christians in this church, If you're a Christian and you love Jesus, we are here to kill you. But if you don't love Jesus, you can leave now. Some people left, most people stayed, and they were gunned down. What would you have done? I think all Christians hope that we would stay. We all hope that if we were in Nazi Germany, we would have spoken up before it was too late. We would have hidden Jews in our home. We like to think we'd take the bullet to save the one we love, that we'd stand up for what matters rather than slink into the crowd. But how do you know? Some people left that church in China. Some people stayed silent in Germany. Some people watch on as other people fight the battles. How can we be sure that we'll stand firm when it really counts? Well, what you live for now shows what matters to you. What you sacrifice for now shows what matters to you. And no one goes from zero to 100 in one choice. It's the small choices that don't seem significant. It's the little sacrifices that set us up to make the big ones. It's the small choices that seem tiny, insignificant, but take them all together and they add up to a lifetime of conviction. What you sacrifice for now shows what matters to you. And we've seen seven reasons to sacrifice for Jesus. There's seven billion reasons to sacrifice for Jesus. So, Soul Church, let's be like Stephen. Let's live for Jesus.
Let's die for Jesus because Jesus matters most. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the inspiring example of our brother Stephen. We pray that we would live for you and die for you and give you all the glory and honor. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you for all these reasons we've seen to live for you. And help us, Lord, to make the sacrifices now in the small ways to set us up for the big ones. Amen.